Okay, let's go ahead and uh, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3. Galatians 6 and verse 3. And uh, we will, by the grace of God, continue our studies. If you're trying to tune in, I understand that the first session, all kinds of sound difficulties today. The first session streamed perfectly, but the sound didn't. So read my lips. We have the same problem. Okay? So we'll just do the best we can and uh, try to replace the appropriate equipment by next week, uh, Lord willing. So anyway, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, we've been considering the topic, bearing one another's burdens. This is such an important topic because it's one so frequently overlooked in the church, especially of a church of the last days. Why? <clears throat> because in the last days, men will be lovers of self. That's right at the top of a list of 20 things. And we find that <clears throat> anywhere and everywhere, looking out for old number one, they write books about it, and that's what they're interested in. They're not, uh, they're not seeking to serve number one, the Father and the Son on the throne. But instead, they're trying to, in a sense, transplant him and take his place. And that is a problem. But we are called as Christians to be different. We're supposed to be different by a love for the Almighty and a love for one another. That's the two big things that that we are uh, measured by in God's book. And he told us in Galatians 1... If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of selflessness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So he's saying that try to help those that have stumbled and fallen and are having trouble. That's what we're called to do as Christians. Paul's writing the Galatian church, churches, and you think the church is a Galatia, and you see chapter 1, he starts with the gospel. Chapter 2, he starts with... Uh, legalism addresses legalism trying to infiltrate the church chapter 3 he said how did you get the spirit by works of the spirit or by grace through faith in chapter 4 he gives us a beautiful allegory the only specified allegory found in scripture but in chapter 5 he said we've been set free and we're not to use this freedom for an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And he tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is, and he tells us what the works of the flesh are. And he said, they're really evident. You really should know what they are. And then in chapter 6, he starts with this, helping one another. See what he's done with the foundation? You don't build a foundation of anything other than the clear gospel. You don't build a foundation based on legalisms people imposed. You don't build a foundation of trying to work for your spirituality. You look to the Old Testament and learn from it with uh, Sarah and Hagar and the various illustrations. And you've been set free. You can do anything you want. But Paul said all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And there's some things that are lawful. They're not going to cost us our salvation. But they are not profitable because they don't benefit us or anybody else. Actually, the best way in the Christian life to look out for old number one is to help other people. It is. When, when you get down to it. 
Christian life does not think like the world does. And that is so very important to understand. He said in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Now this is a command that is given. It's not designed to be an optional part of the Christian life. But he says, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. There's only less than a dozen things specified as law in the New Testament. And this is one of them. That you take care of one another. Verse 3 is the pitfall of self-righteousness. And he's giving us some warning when we're trying to help someone, some things to look out for. So before we begin, as let's just take just a moment to bring ourselves in front of the throne of grace. Let the Holy Spirit be our teacher. Uh, clear our mind. Speak, O Lord, to us. That's what we're asking. He's speaking through his word this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do ask you to speak to us as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Father, what an amazing prayer that is portrayed in that song, just like your psalms did over a thousand years before our Lord. And Father, we pray we'll take this truth and it will be a part of us. And we will seek to help others, but not with an arrogance, not with worldly wisdom, but, Father, in the right way. Help us learn what that right way is according to your standards. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 3, he says, for if anyone. If anyone here, it's an indefinite pronoun, which is the, the word tis. And he says, thanks. Now, this word means to suppose or imagine. Dokeo is the word form an opinion. And he said, if you have the opinion of yourself that he is something when he's nothing. Literally, it says to be something being nothing. Think yourself to be big shot. Think yourself to be something or nothing. I think we saw part of that in the football games yesterday with some of the upsets by teams that thought they were something and proved to not be sufficient to win the game. They should have won the game, didn't win the game. A few others got scared. But it often sneaks in when arrogance gets hold of us and we really think we're something. Then uh, then we, we get awakened, if you will. He says he deceives himself. Now, is that hard to understand? When we really think we are the big dog, when we really think that we are something... Deceives himself is a present active indicative of phrenopatao. Phren comes from the mind. That's one of the words that deals with the mind. Patao usually means to walk walk about. It's the only place that uh, this uh, this particular verb is found in the New Testament. The the noun form of it is only found one time, and that's in Matthew 1.10. So it's not a common word, but it's used and inspired and put down by Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, to get our attention, to say, all right, if you, if you really think that you are uh, something, that it says he deceives himself. It's followed by a reflexive pronoun. So it says, if you start thinking you're something, you're really not. And if you think you're something, you just faked yourself out. That's the way it really is. Now, in verse 1, or point 1, 
He says, if we believe that, that we are anything other than a sinner, saved by grace through faith, when we try to help somebody else, we've deceived ourselves. We've deceived ourselves. I'm sure that he is addressing primarily pastors, but he's also addressing all of us because we're all called to shepherd those allotted to our charge. All of us. I believe we're all supposed to be shepherds. That's what we are called to do. So he says, if, if and, and this especially applies, a sinner saved by grace through faith. And uh, as a pastor, I've been called to counsel for the last 40 years, uh, literally, in some really weird situations, rough situations, bad situations. And when you go into those things, sometimes it's because somebody is messed up beyond anything that you can possibly imagine. And if you walk into that thinking, boy, that scoundrel, how could they do that? Why would they do that? What were they thinking? What got in their head? And you walk in there with an attitude of superiority. You are not going to make any progress. That's just guaranteed. It doesn't mean that whenever you are truly humble and you get yourself in the right frame of mind and everything and walk in that things are going to necessarily get better for the other person. But at least there's a shot. At least there's a shot of it. When you could identify with somebody else as a sinner saved by grace through faith and that your life is full of mess-ups too, then maybe they're a little more likely to listen to you. I know when alcoholics decide to get together and try to deal with the issue of alcohol, one of the first things they do is confess that they're an alcoholic. And you know what? They can talk to each other because other people have been there. They've walked a mile in their shoes. Somebody that hasn't been through the same battle can offer good advice, but they're just not the empathy that is there that there, there needs to be. The empathy starts when we're just sinners saved by grace through faith. All of us, no matter who we are. That's who we are. So if we think we're anything else, we have faked ourselves out. That's all there is to it. If we think ourselves to be spiritual by works, we have deceived ourselves. Now, this should be Galatians 3, 1 to 3. I don't know how I missed that, but it should be Galatians 3 because Paul says, I want to ask you a question. And it's interesting, in the book of Galatians, he asks several questions along the way. And he says, I want to ask you a question. Did you receive the, the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing coupled with faith? Having received it by hearing coupled with faith, he answers the question, notice, so they don't answer it wrong. Okay, He answers the question, are you now being completed or matured by works to keep your spirituality? And the answer to that is no. We receive the Holy Spirit by grace through faith. We walk in the Spirit by grace through faith. And he's reminding the Galatian churches just that. So if we think that our spirituality, because why would you think yourself superior to somebody else? Well, if you're spiritual and they're not. Didn't he just say, you who are spiritual, restore such a one? In a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Tempted into what? Maybe the same type of sin that's included in that, but tempted to arrogance whenever you walk in trying to help. That is a mistake to do that. 
So if we think that we are spiritual by our works, we've deceived ourselves in the process. We cannot be selfless toward other people if we consider ourselves superior, if we think we're better. Obviously, throughout history, it's been a test. It's been a test for everybody in every part of the planet. I've been in places where people actually lived out of their carts that they sold their goods from. That's what they, they lived right there. They had a tent pitched or whatever it was, and that's where they lived. And you'd think, gosh, how could they ever have any degree of arrogance? doesn't take you long to find out they do. There are certain vendors that evidently do better, that, develop, that consider themselves superior to other vendors. And we come in and go, oh man, I'm glad I'm not in that position. And we start thinking how superior we are. That's a mistake. You're not going to be able to help people with that type of attitude, an attitude of superiority. We can't be selfless toward other people when we think we're better than they are. Who are we? Sinners saved by grace. Who are we? We're created in the image of God, all of us. Every member of the human race. There's only one real race. It's the human race. Every member is equal in the eyes of God. We need to keep that in mind. Now, see, when you walk in and think yourself superior, a person might even start playing God and try to get the offender indebted by restoring them by worldly good grace to worldly good graces instead of focusing on their spiritual restoration to God. That's where we should want them. They've been caught in a trespass. What's the problem? That the world thinks they're okay? Or that they've complied to what God has said is the standard? Because it's real easy if we get involved in modern psychology and everything. We can start bypassing God to keep relationships that probably shouldn't have been kept anyway. Because they're built on, on sinful activities. And so we have to realize that that we don't need to bypass God. He is the focus. Now, sometimes you have to, it depends on where people are. Sometimes people are in such a bad state, uh, mentally, spiritually, and everything else. You just need to pray the Lord to give them a few more breaths until they can look and see him. I guess it's the, the, I think somebody might have been praying for Nebuchadnezzar. But he was out eating grass like a cow for seven years. till he finally looked up. Did he not? Now, <clears throat> we don't want to, to bypass these things. In fact, if we think ourselves to be something, we've already failed the test. Now, how are you going to go in? You go in as two failed people. And you're trying to give somebody some bit of information, some bit of knowledge that might help them. Sometimes, as said, you just want them to keep drawing another breath for a few more days and give them a chance because they're that close to checking out. Now, those are difficult times. And you go there with as much gentleness as you possibly can. Don't try to 
don't try to go through the entire divine decrees with them about everything God wants from them. Keep it simple. Keep it real simple and try to say, you know, God can handle these things, but you got to decide if you even believe in him. Because sometimes believers reach a point they don't believe in God anymore. And you just need to take it a bit at a time. But they've been caught in a trespass. Don't walk in there think, thinking you know it all. Because any time you do, you're going to find out you don't. You don't. They're going to come up with something you've never heard of or thought of or considered or weighed at all in your, in your thinking. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8. So if you think you're something... You failed the test of being a good counselor already. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Is that hard to understand? Trust. You have confidence in Him. Where? In the Lord, the object, with how much of your heart? Just a piece of it. Don't lean on your own understanding. I know sometimes people get degrees and things and counseling and helping people and things and they are so full of knowledge they think I've got enough knowledge I can help them. I can I can uh, fix this. He says don't lean on your own understanding. Didn't Paul pick this up when he said knowledge makes arrogant but love edifies. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It'll be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. That's quite a passage, isn't it? Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 8. That's a passage that should be right at the forefront of our thinking in a lot of ways. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Our righteousness is not built on another person's unrighteousness. How did we get any righteousness that we have? It wasn't because we earned it, was it? The fact we couldn't earn it is why Jesus needed to go to a cross to pay a penalty that we incurred so that he might freely give us this righteousness. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. But the charisma gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Interesting. I hear people talk about charismatic gifts. And um, when I study the word charis, which is grace, you put an M-A on it, it means something given as a result of grace. And a charisma gift is the air you breathe when you actually track the words down. In fact, you're drawing breath today is a grace gift from God. And people divide up and argue over those things. They don't need to do that at all. We are all blessed as we're drawing, drawing breath. But our righteousness is not built on another's righteousness. This is saying you go in to help somebody that has committed a trespass. Doesn't make you righteous because you haven't done the same trespass at all. Because we can't build our righteousness on others' unrighteousness. God had to give righteousness to us for us to ever receive it. 
I finished 1 Corinthians and started through Romans, and I'm in chapter 13 now in the first pass going through it. And I keep going back uh, through there. I keep it uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture in 1 Corinthians, and it keeps bringing me to these passages right here. Romans chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, who declares righteous the ungodly. And you track it down means imputes his righteousness to the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. He's even going to bring up Abraham in this. But he's not just going to bring up Abraham who believed God and it was imputed to him righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. And he says in verse 6 of Romans 4, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Even David knew that salvation was by grace through faith. Even David. So God had to give us this righteousness for us to ever receive it. If we think ourselves to be superior, we won't want to help others. And that's why we would never fulfill the law of Christ. How do we do that? Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to help anybody else? After all, we've got it right. You know, when we stand up in front of heaven, some people, I think, actually believe they're going to stand in front of the Lord with their chest out boasting. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it, we're all going to stand there totally humbled. All the little air bubbles in our soap are going to be popped. Totally humbled before him. Now, self-righteousness is usually obvious. To anyone, to everyone, and would serve to turn off a person caught in a trespass. Now, do you know any self-righteous people? Have you ever met a self-righteous person? Um, I have. Have I ever been self-righteous? That's the question. <laughs> it's not about whether or not you have been self-righteous. It's whether or not I have been self-righteous. And the answer to that is yes. We have sin natures and we like to compare ourselves with other people. That's who we are. That's part of the battle with the flesh. That we consider ourselves superior. Why is so many people, especially in politics, put other people down to raise themselves up? Deacons, we need to get a dumpster. <laughs> Move all this stuff outside. <laughs> start all over again. <laughs> oh, gosh. Self-righteousness turns people off. We've all known people who've been self-righteous. Why does God let us come into contact with people who are self-righteous? So we'll learn from it. Okay? That's really why he puts people like that in our path to test us. Hopefully, we'll learn from it. See, a wise person learns from their mistakes. 
But the wisest learns from the mistakes of others. Something we so easily miss. We don't want to be like that. We should not want to be like that as Christians. Christ was absolutely righteous. But did he ever uh, come across about being self-righteous? He did ask him one time, which one of you convicts me of sin? Nobody could. Nobody could. This self-righteousness, interestingly enough, is not righteous. His humility brought him here to take our place on a cross. The one in need of restoration needs a friend. One in need of restoration needs a friend who will be caring and honest. And that's what friends should be. John chapter 21 is the restoration of Peter. Now was Peter a little bit arrogant and self-righteous? The night of the cross, the Lord said, one of you is going to betray me. Peter, not me. Not me. The rest of these guys, maybe, probably. Not me. I'm not going to do it. Peter, you're going to deny me three times for morning. That's what's going to happen. You're going to deny me. No, Lord, I'm not going to. And he obviously did. Did he not? Was Peter a little self-righteous? Okay. Well, obviously he was self-righteous. He was deluded. He considered himself superior to the others, as did the others, because they kept fighting over who was greatest in the kingdom. Okay, so they all had this superiority complex. In John 21, the resurrected Lord shows up and he asks him three questions of love. Do you love me, Peter? Agape is the word he used. Peter answered, you know I love you, and he used phileo. Both of them they translated as love in the, in the New American Standard and it's, it's, there's no distinction between the words and there are very clear distinctions in the Greek because he did not answer the question. And the Lord then restored him. Three denials, three restorations. Feed my little lambs. Uh, Peter, do you love me? Agape, again. And Peter said, you know I love you. Phileo, again. Changed words once again. Shepherd my sheep. And Peter, do you love me? And this time he used phileo, third time. And Peter got very upset. And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know. And he said, feed my sheep. So he restored Peter to a position of importance by doing that. That's how we bear one another's burdens. Didn't it? Thus fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus didn't come from an attitude of superiority. He came from an attitude that Peter was valuable in the plan of God, just like every other believer is and every unbeliever, because they all had the potential to become believers in Jesus Christ. So recognizing the fact that we're all created in the image of God and you want to be a service. The, uh, there was an old song out we sang back in the 80s at camp called by Wayne Watson called Who Will Be Jesus to Him? 
an interesting song, missed probably most of us because most of us were not listening to contemporary music, Christian music back in the 1980s. But it's a very interesting song, and it basically asks, who will be Jesus to somebody that really needs it? The question is for us. Who will be Jesus to him? I can't even get through the words. Because they are so apropos to today. We tend to be so judgmental when we don't need to be. Deception is the act of enticing someone to accept as true and valid that which is false or invalid. That's what deception is. The truth is, God exists, God created the earth. If you deceive somebody into not believing that, you have traded that which is true for that which is not. Now, if you start looking at other words, interesting words, pornea, the word translated fornication, it includes that type of spiritual thing. You trade something that is true and righteous for something that is not, and it is called fornication. And it is not just referring to sexual problems. In its translation and its use throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, it refers to a spiritual fornication, following other gods. It's talking about exactly that same thing. And what does it mean? You've traded that which is true and good for that which is not. That's what it is, what it is about. It's enticing somebody. That's what deception is. So if you think that you are better than anybody else, then you have been deceived by your sin nature. The devil helps you. The world helps you. Other people frequently help you, but no. Who are we? Believers are to beware of being deceived. Beware of it. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, Paul writes. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. We're supposed to beware of being deceived. The wrath of God, let no one deceive you. See that interesting thing, deceive you. Who's Paul writing to? The church at Ephesus. He's writing to believers. And as I go back through all these New Testament books, I keep finding out and realizing that believers can be just as goofy as unbelievers. I mean, sometimes unbelievers can't hold a candle to us when it comes down to it. And let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty words are words that are flowery. They're impressive. People that use words just because they know you don't know them. Kind of like some... Uh, scientists, like some doctors, like some people who pick up a vocabulary word and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really put you in your place because you don't know this word. It gives a feeling of superiority. We have to be aware of being deceived because sometimes those, you know, to lift up the name, don't lift up the name of the Lord your God in vain for nothing. Now some people think that's confined to a couple of words. It's not. Because you can read things in books that never use a so-called cultural curse word at all, and they are blasphemous because they have lifted up the name of the Lord our God in vain. 
They have used accepted English to accept their grammatical forms and everything else, and yet they have called God a liar, and that's blasphemy uh, in, its, in its purest form. Satan's a master at deception. He, he's been working on this thing for a long time. Now we know he showed up in a fallen condition in the Garden of Eden. So that means he's been around planet Earth for at least 6,000 years or so. That's how long he's been, been around. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Now why did he write 2 Corinthians? Because they got some things fixed from 1 Corinthians. That's why he wrote it. Because he's writing them to give them some commendation on the fact that you listened to the first letter and you started making improvements. But he's also saying you still have a long way to go. There's still things that you need to fix and things that you need to repair. But he, he is commending them on the fact that they listen and that they are and they carried out some very difficult instructions. They had to remove some people from the congregation. And he said they needed sorrow, a godly sorrow, but not too much. So you as the congregation, whenever there has been a repentance and a change, you need to be willing to make the acceptance. You need to make the, the adjustment. You need to go back to, to grace. And that's what he's writing to tell them. Now when he gets to, uh, after 8 and 9, two great uh, chapters on giving and 10 again about the uh, uh, spiritual heritage and 11 he says I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness he goes all the way back to Genesis 3 your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ Satan, the master at deception. And what does he want to do? He wants to stack words on top of each other that tend to take us in another direction. He wants to twist words. Have you ever noticed how words are being redefined by people? Have you noticed how history is being rewritten, attempt to rewrite history by people? It's all about deception. And where, was, where does deception come from? From the devil himself. The master at it. Believers need to remember our sin natures will deceive us. You know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's our three main battles. And without the world and the flesh, or without the world and the devil, we can still be deceived. The flesh can do it. The sin nature on the inside. We know we're supposed to speak the truth in love. We know we're supposed to Help one caught in a trespass. We know these things, and we can rationalize those things out of existence, where they're not even a part of our, where they're not even a part of our thinking. Our sin natures will deceive us. Romans 7:11, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. Now Paul in Romans 7 is talking about part of his life as an unbeliever without question, but he's also talking about his life as a believer. That he was he had been deceived by his sin nature. 
why do I do what I don't want to do? Have you ever found that? You, you know there's a right thing to do, and you just decide, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> or you get conveniently distracted to forget about doing it. It's easy, it easily happens. Why did it, Paul said, it's the sin inside of me. Now, he's not passing the buck like Adam passed the buck. Not at all. He's identifying the problem. And he said, the internal problem is me. But one thing about Paul is he kept working on the internal problem. He called himself the greatest sinner that ever lived. In his latter writings, why would he do that? Because there are a lot of people on the street, you stop and say, are you a sinner? Let's just do, a, like Jay Leno used to do, a jaywalking or something like that, and he'd walk up. Are you a sinner? And a lot of them would go, no. Because they don't even know what sin is. It's a problem. Probably a lot of Christians would even say the same thing. I asked a group of pastors that one time at a pastor's conference in India. I said, how many of you out here are sinners? I raised my hand. Nobody else did. I thought, boy, if we know which direction to go now. <laughs> Convince me. Okay, let's just uh, take a look at something that's already inside of you, born into you in the flesh, and it, it is inherently hostile to God. And they went, what? I said, turn to Romans 5. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Hmm. Are we a new creation in Christ Jesus? Yeah. You haven't understood 1 John 3 properly yet because there's a new creation inside of us. It doesn't sin, but your old one sure does. And they're fighting for control with each other. The spirit says this desire against the flesh, and the flesh is desire against the spirit, and there is an ongoing war in inside of us. Our sin natures will fake us out. We'll get deceived and maybe following some political people or something like that. We, there's a lot of ways we can get deceived on it. But our sin natures can do that. Self-deception occurs when we consider ourselves to be wise. See, that's often where it just starts. From 1 Corinthians 3.18, <clears throat> Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become foolish so he can become wise. You really think you got it figured out. You have to be a constant student. And disciple, see, is a student. That's what we're called to be is disciples. And disciples want to learn in order to be changed. Kelvin quoted Romans 12 today about your body's a living holy sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's the renewing of your mind include? Getting rid of the arrogance. By the renewing of your mind. So you can determine what the will of God is, and you'll know it because it's good, well-pleasing to Him, and it's mature. It's grown up. Now, <clears throat> Evidence of self-deception is an unbridled tongue. From James chapter 1 and verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious 
and yet does not bridle his tongue, <laughs> but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. You think you got it all down where the practices are all right and you got it all figured out there and he says, and yet um, you don't bridle the tongue. Sometimes people, well, that's just who I am. Sometimes who we are needs to change. It's what the scripture is saying very clear, clearly. And those who promote the importance of relational Christianity without doctrinal accuracy can deceive the unsuspecting. Now what does that mean? Relational Christianity. There are a lot that today in Christianity that thinks that all we got to do is love one another. I wouldn't argue with that, but you've got to define love the way the Bible does. Because <clears throat> love is not being accepting of all, all the wrong things going on in this world. That's not what it's about. Love is able to confront gently, wisely. That's what we're told to do. It doesn't say we're supposed to embrace everything. Romans 16, 18, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now we've got those all over the uh, television channels and everything else right now. They don't care anything about doctrinal accuracy. They go off into never, never land. Some of them even think that, that uh, you're a little God to yourself. They take the passage where Jesus said, you are gods. Why are you going to get on me for, calling, for saying I'm the son of God? Doesn't the scripture say you are gods? Well, scripture does say that very clearly. But Jesus' challenge in the context is, okay, go ahead and prove it. Your God's in your own minds, Pharisees. Prove it. Do the acts of God. Do things that only God can do. Come on. And he challenged them to do that, which they could not do. But some today would say you can become your own God, creating your own world. That's the anti-theistic theory of pluralism. That there are as many worlds as there are people to create them. And we say, oh, that person just living in their own little world. Yeah, they're trying to create their own little world that they're the God of. We're living in the world designed by God that Satan's in charge of for now, to a degree. <clears throat> we have to have doctrinal accuracy. What does the Word of God actually say about certain things? That is our standard. That's how we're not deceived. We're going to be studying next week in Peter about what really is virtue. Because virtue right now has been redefined in different places around the world. Virtue is whatever I've got to do to keep my power. Whatever I've got to do to keep my position. Whatever I've got to do to keep my money and fortune. Whatever I've got to do to other people is perfectly virtuous and lawful and desirable. Those people have been deceived. And why can we say that? Because the Bible tells us what is being deceived and what is not. Now verse 4, we're going to leave off here. But he says, let each of you examine your own work. 
See, <laughs> then you'll have reason for boasting. Literally, reason for uh, the boast in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Now, what is this talking about? <clears throat> just that. You just figure out what you do. You don't need to spend you don't need to spend time thinking yourself superior to other people because that's a failure of the test. Don't waste time doing that. Waste time, don't waste time. Spend time doing the things you're supposed to do. Look into the mirror of the Word of God and say, Lord, show me my flaws. How about Lord give me my courage? Give me courage. To be able to do what I need to do so that I'm doing everything pleasing in your eyes. Sometimes, and George said, setting the bar real low. Sometimes we set the bar way too low. Way too low. Does God accept me as I am? Just as I am. We sang the song. That's how he accepts us. But he loves us too much to leave us that way. That's what he does. Self-analysis, not self-righteousness. That's what the scripture calls us to do. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this day, for your love and mercy and grace. We thank you for all your blessings and all your tests. Father, we thank you just once again that as we open up your word, it is full of loving correction. And Father, we can thank you for that. We pray that those that you put in our path, that we might be able to help Father, that we would be able to, to help them as you've called us to do that. Not looking to ourselves, not being full of ourselves, but, Father, hopefully being full of our Lord. That's what we ask for, Father, that we may be a witness and your witness as we go through this life. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.